Guys, would you grab a Bible tonight? We are in Luke 17. We're making our way on Wednesday nights through the Bible chapters at a time, and so tonight we find ourselves here in the Gospel of Luke chapter 17, hoping you got a Bible, making your way there with us, whether physically, electronically, both work, join us there in that. For you guys who are joining us online, welcome again, and grab a Bible. Make sure you're with us. Follow along. Uh, just so that you see the things that God would speak, and just believing that His Word is powerful, believing that His Word could work in your life and my life in significant and real ways. And so we really do want that this evening, and so we're going to take one more moment to pray, and I'm going to invite you guys to pray with me. In this sense that I want to lead you in this, and yet just asking that as we present ourselves before God this evening, that God would just cause us to hear Him. I'm going to ask for that for me and for you, but I'm hoping you would ask for it as well. So let's do that right now. Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for your word. Lord, it's relevant. It's relevant into our lives right now. It speaks into where we are. God, help us to hear you. God, take your word and make it just understandable to us. Make it clear. Give us understanding. Open up our understandings that we might comprehend your truth but also just speak in a powerful way where the very thing that we need to hear from you, we would hear tonight. That you would speak to us in this space by your power, by your truth, by your word. We ask for that right now as we submit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One of the verses that has just captured my understanding of some this year is found in Matthew's Gospel where in Matthew 24, Jesus just said, and then many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. Jesus gives us this sign, this mark uh, of the world that would be rapidly moving towards the end times, things that he said would mark those last days. And it's a fascinating thing because, well, you guys know, in some ways it feels like we have become the offended generation that everybody is offended and everybody's struggling with offense and and wrestling through those realities. And so it really does seem, hey, this is something that is growing. That said, it's not unique. It didn't begin in our era. It didn't begin in these days. It's long been an issue. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is going to be dealing with in the first part of this section. We're in Luke 17, Jesus speaks to his disciples very clearly about offenses. You might just notice verse 1 with me for a moment. It says, Then he said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to him through whom they do come. Offenses. That's again what he's dealing with. He's talking about what those are, and we ought to actually pause for a second and, and kind of define that for a moment. Biblically, when the Bible uses this word offense, it might literally be a translated stumbling block. It's the Greek word scandalon, where we actually get the word kind of a scandal that would kind of rock something. And I point that out because in some ways, we've overused the word offense in our generation. We use it in a way that doesn't actually mean I'm offended, it just means I don't like it. It doesn't actually mean that 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 troubles me deeply, it just might mean that I disagree with it. But when the Bible uses this word offense, it doesn't have the idea of something that you just disagree with, but something that could really be 
problematic for you, troubling, almost where it would trip you up, where it would trip you up in your, in your life, and very specifically, trip you up in your soul and your progress to God. So when it's using the idea of, of offense and things like that, he's saying, okay, that's what this is. That's what we're talking about, is that something that would be actually very much hindering in, into a life. And as Jesus speaks about it, the first thing he just lets us know is that those kinds of things are unavoidable. Again, I just think about how clear he says it. He says it's impossible that no offenses should come. It's impossible. You cannot live a life in this broken, fallen world where there are not things that could trouble and trip up and cause people to, to, to be kind of moved in their faith. There's no way to have a, a life without offenses, without having to deal with offenses. Now, that's just helpful, just right off the bat, and just in one sense kind of saying, okay, we recognize that that is something that we are and will deal with. And yet, what he quickly draws our attention to is, though it's, not, it's impossible to avoid those, Jesus says, but, verse 1 again there, woe to him through whom they do come. He warns us away from causing offenses. He says that though it's impossible that no offenses would, could, could, we could have a life without them, we just don't want to be the cause of those offenses as much as we possibly can. In fact, Jesus uses such a powerful illustration of that. He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Now, that's just a pretty strong analogy. He says it would be so much better. It would be better to kind of have cement galoshes to be thrown into the sea in that sense than, there, than for your life to become something that would stumble somebody, that would turn somebody, that would cause someone to be moved away from God. Now, that's just, it's a worthy thing for us to think about for a moment. Here's part of the problem. Part of the problem is because of sin, we are so inherently selfish, and that's hard sometimes to even just be honest with, but even when we think about offenses, so often we're thinking about ourselves, like, you know, I'm offended, or, or I don't like that, and, and I don't want something to hurt me, and what Jesus is calling us to is say, hey, you want to live a life in such a way that you're not the cause of, of hurting or troubling or stumbling somebody else, and that's a powerful reality. The kind of thing that we'd honestly think through, both what we do and what we say. We, we live in, an, again, an arrogant generation, an opinionated generation, where sometimes people are more concerned with sharing their opinion or their ideas than actually asking, I wonder if this would hurt somebody. I wonder if this would trouble somebody. I wonder if this would trip somebody up. And Jesus is calling us to that kind of life where we're like, I don't want that to be me. I mean, there's no way that you can get through this life without offenses. I just don't want my life to be the one that causes somebody else to be moved. I found myself thinking about that. And one of my favorite Psalms in Psalm 73, Asaph is there and he's struggling and he actually enters into a season of doubt and discouragement. And he's actually even wondering if God is good, but he has this powerful phrase in the midst of it. As he's talking about it, he says, I was afraid even to share it because I didn't want to stumble anybody else. I mean, I'm struggling, but I don't want my struggles to hurt somebody else. And I found myself walking around that thinking, you know, there, there's some danger there of isolation, but there's also a wonder 
that would say, I'm, I'm more concerned about other people than I am about my right to share my opinion, or my, I'm honestly just concerned. And, and, and that sense, walking in that. I think about it in 1 John, it calls it to us this way. It says, he who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. It says, if you really do love and you really care about other people, that's going to move you to living in the light. That's going to cause you to want to live a life that's doing the right thing, living in the right ways, and there's going to be no cause. Your life isn't going to be the one that that stumbles somebody. But again, trace this to it. The idea is that he's calling us to have a heart that really does care about other people, that really is loving other people. And in some ways, that's part of the call right now. It's not a part of of a guilt complex or to overly worry us in it, but it is a space for us to say, oh God, I don't want that to be that. That I want to think about it in this kind of offense-ridden generation where people talk about it. In the end, I don't want it to be that it's my life that, that causes somebody into that place where that happens. That's a challenging reality. Again, it moves us to maybe the right heart that is more concerned about others than concerned with ourselves. Now, that's a great reality. And again, that Jesus moves into that space of saying it, but then he takes us a little bit further. He says in verse 3, take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. So we're talking about offenses. We're talking about things that stumble. We're talking about things that hurt. And Jesus now calls us to be those who walk in forgiveness, who because of things happen where people get their feelings hurt and offenses happen, he's challenging us, first of all, to be on the positive side of that, not trying to offend, but then to be on the other side of it, being willing to forgive. He calls us, he says, okay, so if somebody sins and he sins against you, there is a place of, of rebuking him, of confronting, much that's said in Scripture about that reality. We're not going to spend a lot of time on that right here except to say, hey, that's part of it. Sometimes to be able to tell somebody, hey, that's wrong and, 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 and that's what you're doing is that or you've done something against me. There is a confronting of sin. But then the point of it, Jesus says, if you, if you confront him, if you rebuke him, and if he repents, hey, you just need to forgive him. You need to be in that space where you offer that forgiveness, where you are the one that allows that to move away. And then Jesus says, and if he sins against you seven times in a day, seven times in a day in return saying to you, I repent, you shall forgive him. Now, let's just pause and think about this for a moment. Because, I mean, Jesus is speaking. He's speaking very illustratively, very powerfully, but wow. I mean, let's think about just the reality. He's telling us, okay, you're going to confront sin, and if they come and, and they repent, you're going to forgive him. And if he sins against you and says, okay, I'm sorry, forgive me. And then you say, okay, okay, I forgive you. And then he does it again, same day, same day. He says, why don't you forgive him again? And then, you so you forgive him. And then same day, he does it again. And you're like, now, let's just be honest. For some of you, it's like, that's about it. You know, like, like once, maybe. Twice, we're kind of pushing it. Three times, I'm done. I mean, that's just like, no, I, you, you don't mean it. I, I don't believe you. I mean, you can't sin against me seven times in one single day and, and kind of go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And that kind of provoke in me that that's kind of where we can be. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to, to be that kind of a forgiver that says, okay, you know what? Hey, I can't judge your heart. I'm not in that place of being the one who can kind of think, okay, well, you don't mean it because you've already done this like four times today. Um, 
But it is going to be that place of saying, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm so willing to forgive. I'm so joying in that space that I recognize that I need to be one who forgives. And so Jesus sets this bar really high. Now, again, you probably get it. Seven's not meant to be the limit. Like, okay, if they get to seven, that's where I'm done. You know, I mean, you guys know Jesus will say it in other places. Even if it's 70 times seven, I mean, there is no kind of numeric value on this, but it's a continuous place of us forgiving, of us saying, okay, you know, this is an offended world, but I'm so willing not to be the one that stays offended. I'm so willing to be the one that says, I forgive you, and I'm so glad to be able to forgive you, and I'll do it again and again. Well, I don't know how you're responding to that. I know how the disciples respond to it. They say it in verse 5, and the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Like, that sounds really good, but boy, we are just weak for that. You know, like, okay, we're going to need more faith. If, if, that, if you're asking us to forgive that much, then, then we're going to need some kind of supernatural, souped up, and enabling to be able to live that, because that sounds impossible. I mean, they look at this, and it just seems like an enormous thing. Jesus approaches this really well. He answers, and so he says in verse 6, he says, So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by its roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It's a powerful reality. Jesus just talks about it's not really a lot of faith that you need, even a little faith. And the idea of, of a mustard seed, which is the smallest of the seeds. He says, even if you have this little bit of faith, it's not like you need a lot of faith. Even a little bit of faith can, can do amazing things. In one sense, the disciples are having this place where they're almost wanting to make this big and impossible, but Jesus is saying no. In fact, it's kind of an interesting thing. Let's just make sure we press through this for a moment. Hey, a little faith can change things. In fact, some kind of people who look at different parts of the way things work, yeah, the mustard seeds, the smallest seed, a mulberry tree is a very deep-rooted tree, one that could go have, have deep roots. He says, you can change that. You can, you can change that. And if we apply that metaphorically, even into the idea of offenses, it's like we could, we could change that. that. A little faith could take, take, take this deep-rooted feeling impossible to move offense, and it can absolutely change things. David Guzik said it this way, He says, we usually think of faith as being exercised with dramatic, miraculous works. That may be true, but the greatest miracles of faith have to do with restoration of relationships. Sometimes we think about, I need to have more faith, or faith like a mustard seed. We can often think again of, you know, healing or something happening that feels, you know, like, okay, that's a really big thing. And God does do those things. We ought to have faith for those things. But Sometimes the greatest faith, the power where faith really moves is where it really can change deep-rooted offenses, where it really can move in that. And again, we're not talking about fixing somebody else as much as we talk about fixing you. Because again, that's the challenge. Jesus is telling us, hey, I want you to forgive them. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be somebody who can forgive even seven times a day. And so the point that he's dealing with is not us praying like, I have faith, Lord, fix them. You know, Lord, I have faith, change that person. No, it's like faith, change me. 
I believe you can work in me. I believe that you can do this in me. I believe that right now there's deep roots that have offense in my life, but I'm going to believe in God's ability to, to, to help me and, and work in that and, and cause that to be something that moves forward. So Jesus kind of just confronts in one sense their idea, hey, this is going to take a lot of faith. He's like, no, it actually doesn't. Just a little faith can change things radically. Now, as he says that, he continues the discussion. In fact, it's interesting to note, verse 7, it begins with the word and. And I want to just pause and say, hey, some Bible students kind of look at these next few verses and kind of see them as an entirely different subject. And certainly it has great application uh, to much in our lives, talking about the, the way a servant would serve the Lord. But I think, again, there is a connection. In other words, Jesus is still answering their question. They've said, hey, we're going to need a lot of faith to be able to do that. And Jesus says, actually, you don't. Just a little bit of faith will do it. And then he says this, and which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I've eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded of him? I think not. So likewise, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants, we have only done what is our duty to do. So it's this powerful reality where he's calling us to be those who say, okay, God, I'm just, there's, you know, there's not any kind of huge congratulations if I'm just being obedient. Again, that can have great application to much in our lives, but when we specifically apply it to forgiveness, and one sense, I think what Jesus is saying is it's just simple obedience. I mean, if you do what Jesus is saying here, he says there's not any kind of thing where you kind of walk out of here and think, well, I'm a super saint. That's me. I forgave seven times. You know, that's what I did. You know, look at me. I have so much faith. You should be able to do that and say, you know what, Lord? I just did what you said to do. It wasn't, there's, there's not any kind of like, you know, hey, really huge or if I'm doing what you said, it's only obedience. So what makes this so powerful? Well, sometimes, I, I think this is such a serious issue, this idea of being offended and, and, and being hurt. Sometimes we can have the ability to make these things seem impossible or huge or like that's such a big deal that nobody can do this or if I ever did do it, that would be like the equivalent of being a superstar Christian who really does that. And Jesus is, he kind of just destroys even the logic of it. It says, actually, this isn't going to take a lot of faith. It's a little faith, and it's just obedience. It's just obedience. So that if you forgive others, there's no sense of saying, hey, this is some really, really big deal. It's meant to be like, I'm just doing what Jesus said to do. And this is a big part of our lives. I mean, I, I don't know how real this feels in your life. I do know this. It's a constant part of our lives. There's not anybody in this room right now that's going, well, that's interesting. <laughs> I wonder what it'll be like. Maybe someday I'll be offended and really get to figure out what to do with that. No, that's not the way it works. I know this. You struggle. In fact, I like praying through the Lord's Prayer every day. I've encouraged many of you guys to do the same. And, you know, if you know in the part of that prayer, you come and you're saying, God, hey, forgive me. Forgive me my trespasses or forgive me my sins, even as I forgive those who've sinned against me. One of the things I recognize in praying through that every day is that this is a daily battle in my life. 
that there's no sense of just saying, hey, these are just big moments, or it's like every day I have to come and say, God, is, is there something I'm holding on to? Is there bitterness? Is there, is there you know, someplace where I'm not being merciful the way that you're merciful to me? And if I walk through that and am able to do that, what Jesus is saying is, hey, that's just a little faith needed, and you should just walk out of it saying, I'm just doing what he said to do. This isn't like really superstar status. This is just saying, God, I'm doing what you said to do. And I'm just telling you right now that would be amazing. And yet right now I might be speaking to somebody who you're struggling with an offense and in your own mind you have made it that big impossible. You know, is it going to take, you know, going to take to move a mountain to get this thing done? You know, I'm just so hurt. And she's like, no, actually it doesn't. Just a little faith in Jesus and just saying, okay, God, I'll do what you said. I'll just, I mean, I'll do what you said, because that's what a servant does. Servant, you know, you know, at the end of the day, it's not that, you know, that's what you, you're simply walking in obedience. And there's a place of just stepping towards that, almost looking at that thing that's looming in your life and saying, that's what I want, I'm going to need a little faith and just simple obedience. And again, I'm just calling you to step towards that. But one more time. I don't believe it's a one-time thing. I don't think you can walk and say, yep, I did that. That was dealt with that offense and it's done. I, I, again, I pray through this every day and I found it a daily thing. That there's a constant place of saying, hey, that if we're going to do this, if we're going to walk in this, we're going to need to do this. Because again, in simple ways, offenses in this world, they are unavoidable. You don't want to be the one that causes offense, but you're going to have to deal with them. And so Jesus calls us to be a forgiver. That we be those who say, you know what, I'm, 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 I'm seeking to walk in that ability to be one who doesn't let that kind of poison my soul, doesn't let these things that become so offensive to, to, to some not to be a part of that, and it's a powerful reality. This was needed in any generation. I mean, this again, we're not the, we're not the first generation to discover offenses, but I'm just pressing a little bit to say you guys already know. It feels like we really are facing it in some huge ways. And, and, and there's a sense of just saying, okay, I'm not going to go the way the world is doing this. I'm not going to let this define the way I handle it. I'm going to let Jesus define this. And I'm going to be one who seeks not to cause offense. And I'm going to be one that walks in forgiveness as he calls me to. That he would call you and I to be a part of that. Okay, so that's the first part of this chapter. He deals with offenses. He t- tells us how to work with that. And then he switches. He moves into another subject that has some connection, but we want to just see it. So you walk through this. He's dealt with offenses, and so Jesus leaves that instruction. Verse 11 says, Now as it happened, he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then he entered a certain village, and there there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices to Jesus and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, you guys know where we are. I mean, it's a familiar story. It's one that certainly has the the heartbeat of thankfulness in it, but dealing with these 10 lepers. So let's just think through the story. It's a pretty pretty significant one. It actually is literal. It actually is happening. Jesus is making his way between Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria there, and and, and he's working through that, and he enters this village, and there's 10 men who are lepers. Lepers being this incurable, isolating, just, just horrible disease in many ways, and yet they're, they're kind of huddled together, and they ask him. They just ask him for mercy. 
And I find that just to be a powerful reality. And again, I'm one of those people that I have so many questions. It's like, I wonder how they heard. I mean, I wonder what they knew. I mean, I, I wonder, were they seeking him? I mean, or, or did they just happen to run into him? I mean, but somehow here are these people who have been isolated and, and wounded, and they see Jesus, and together. I mean, did they encourage one another on? Like, let's go ask him, let's go ask him. And like, Jesus, we need mercy. Jesus, we need mercy. We're just gonna, we're gonna ask you for this, and Jesus gives it. Verse 14, so he saw them, and he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And so it was, as they went, they were cleansed. Ten come and they ask, hey, Jesus, show us mercy, and ten are sent away. Sent away, and they're cleansed, or they're healed. It's an amazing kind of thing, and again, I'm just kind of wondering, I mean, did they, did they believe it already? I mean, he, Jesus actually sends them to the priests, which they'd have no access to unless they're healed. They'd have no, I mean, but I wonder if they're thinking, well, okay, maybe we are going to be healed, or were they thinking, I, I mean, you kind of wonder, but Jesus just says, hey, go. Make your way to the priest. Go show yourself to the priest, which would be the, the place of, of being on the other side of that. They all leave. Uh, they all leave and begin to make their way away. Verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks, and he was a Samaritan. So there's the story. Ten are cleansed, ten are, are met, only one returns. Only one returns and glorifies God and gives him thanks. And it kind of only adds to the drama of it. And it just kind of says, he's a Samaritan. He's not even a Jew. And it feels like maybe some of the others were, were officially in that category or from, the, from Judea. And there's so much backlog in that. But Jesus just asked the question. So he answered and said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? I mean, there, there were 10 people that were cleansed. Where are the rest? Where are the rest who I have dealt favorably with? It's one of those poignant questions that honestly could be asked today. Because in one sense, God is always showing favor. He's always doing good. And it's almost as you feel like God could always be asking the question, where are the others? Where, where, you know, so if one comes and says, thank you, where, where's the rest of those who are enjoying my favor, who are enjoying my blessings, who, who are being a part of that? He says, we're not, not any found to give glory to God except this foreigner. And Jesus said to him, arise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. It speaks life into this man, speaks into, into his trust and in the, in the place where he is, but it seems that it was more. When he uses the word go, your, your faith has made you well. It's a phrase that's used a few times throughout the Gospels that seems to be more than just a physical healing, but salvation. So some translations would even say that, your, your faith has saved you. And I would point out to you, I think that's what's happening. I think there's 10 that are blessed by God and only one that returns and only one that is saved. That, that he's coming back and, and recognizing both what God has done and he's come back into this place of giving God thanks. He's come back into this place and Jesus is able to speak to him and tell him, hey, your faith has made you well. Maybe the key lesson for us is just to understand in one sense the essential place of being thankful. 
much we could say on it. I think Billy did a message on it a while back, did this whole study, and it great more details that you guys could go back and get on this. But I want to just simply say it this way. Thankfulness is not bonus. It's integral. So much so that when Romans defines the brokenness of mankind, people that are moving into rebellion and, and moving away from God and, and rebelling against everything that's there, Romans unpacks just the ugliness of that heart. And it says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. He kind of just diagnoses the brokenness of mankind. He says they actually rec- they, there's, there's something that they know that God is there, but they won't give Him glory. And they won't be thankful. And their foolish heart is darkened. And then he goes on and unpacks the, the sinful ugliness that that comes, just the rebellion that, that just flows into every other place of it. But it's a fascinating juncture to look at thankfulness here at this moment and understand it's kind of the vein, it's the, it's the, the central flow of where this is happening. See, my problem is this, and maybe it's not yours, maybe you get this better than I do, but sometimes I think about thankfulness as an extra. It's kind of almost like, you know, if you were to, you know, be buying a car and you could get the scaled-down model or you could get the one with the heated seats, you know. It's like, well, sometimes in my mind I can be like, well, thankfulness is like the heated seats. It's more comfortable, you know. It's not, it's a nice thing, but you don't actually need it. I mean, you could actually, you know, have the car without it. And I want to tell you, when my mind goes that direction, and mine does, maybe yours doesn't, I need to recognize I'm wrong. This isn't extra. This isn't comfort. This is fundamental. That this place of being thankful, of being one that recognizes the flow of God, God's work into my life and responds by coming back and saying, God, thank you. I glorify you. It not only unpacks for me life, it, it brings salvation. I mean, it's that place that actually draws us to recognize who he is, that brings us back into that place, and that becomes, again, essential in our lives. In other words, when we think about all that this is, there's such a power, there's such a place of us being those who recognize and see, hey, thankfulness is, is so much a part of where we are. And so Jesus is able to look at this and just call us to be those. And I just want to give it to you exhortatively. Be the one. Be the, be, the, be the one, not the nine. Be the one that comes back. And, and, and when you see what God has done in your life, because it tells, I love the way it says in verse 15, when he saw he was healed. When he recognized what God has, has done, he says he returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down at his feet, giving him thanks. Be that one that does that. Be that one that recognizes God's goodness and responds to that. I think, again, it's a daily part of our lives. Thankfulness is not supposed to be something that just happens in November. It's meant to be something that daily we're just saying, God, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I mean, it's meant to be so ingrained in our lives. Uh, for many of us, we kind of have kind of developed that habit of saying grace or thanks over meals. It's not a legalistic requirement, though there's scriptural that kind of points to it. But how powerful it would be is if you actually did it. The reality is that sometimes you can do it. You can get to a meal and maybe you'll actually go through it and say, you know, Lord, thank you for this food and bless us in Jesus' name. And you can actually say the words and not actually be thankful. 
I think about what Jesus said. It says, people draw near to me with their mouth. Their hearts are far from me. Like they're saying the right thing. They don't actually mean it. I want to challenge you to be someone who means it. That, you know, if you do that, just even a couple times a day, you're just pausing and saying, God, I just want to stop right now. I just want to stop right now and say thank you. I want to recognize your goodness towards me. I want, I want, I want to be one that, that allows that conduit to open up and, and respond. And I'm telling you, it's not a minor thing. It's a thing that brings us into the life that God has for us. It's a place that God would bring us into this place of honestly being thankful. Okay. Well, we're making our way through the chapter. We've been there. Now we're going to jump subjects one more time. One more thing that we're going to talk about tonight. So we've talked about offenses. We've talked about thankfulness. It's right out of that. So he shares this story. He shares this this place where he heals these, these 10. And then it tells him right from that that the Pharisees have a question for him. Now, verse 20, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered and said to them, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. So the Pharisees have a question. They have a question about God's kingdom, ultimately being heaven, ultimately being the kingdom of God that we are meant to long for and pray for, and they have a question. God, how how, how are we going to recognize that? How how is that going to happen? You know, know, how is that going to work? And and so they're asking him when it would happen and, and, and much that would un- unpack from that. Simple understanding, that's a big deal. That's one of those questions that probably most of us have in one way or another. And so Jesus is going to speak to them and speak to us in a way that hopefully would shape our hearts. He begins by just telling them what well, we read there in verse 20. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. It says that when the kingdom of God comes, you're not going to be able to observe it in its approach. You're not going to be able to see it coming. Now, it's good to pause and understand, they literally expected this. They literally were expecting that the Messiah was going to come, and he was going to be a military conqueror, and he was going to be able to kind of, you know, sweep across the landscape, you know, bringing in reform, and, and, and things. Says, that's not the way it's going to come. You're not going to be able to say, hey, the kingdom of God has just, you know, pressed through and, you know, it's just just passed through Las Cruces and it's making its way here or something. We're not going to be able to look and say, okay, it's there and approaching. He says, that's not the way the kingdom of God works. He says, the real kingdom is happening invisibly. He says in verse 21, he says, now I know where they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, for many of you guys, who may be our believers, this is actually something you kind of already understand, but let me just, again, speak it. God is rescuing people, and God is doing a work into the kingdom of God, but it isn't something where it's a military victory sweeping across the landscape. It's happening one man, one woman, one child at a time as they believe on Jesus, and, and it's happening within us that when we become followers of God, we become a part of the kingdom. We become those who are happening. So, the, the sweep that's happening in our world today, it's individual, it's personal, it's salvation. That's how the kingdom of God is growing today in our world today, and it is growing, but there is no kind of visible approach to it because it's happening in invisible and glorious but real ways. So Jesus just tells them, hey, it's not going to happen that way. So he says it in verse 22, so then he said to his disciples, the days will come 
when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. It's a clear instruction from Jesus, and again, one that I just need to speak. I don't know if it's actually happening in somebody's life, but sometimes it could actually happen. When we so long to see the kingdom of God come, that there are movements, there are things that happen in our world, but they're not actually God. There are things at times that people would say, either they're the Messiah, or like, hey, this is the kingdom of God, it's happening over here, you know, it's happening in this city, or it's happening in this location, and, and this is really where, you know, the, the, the glory is exploding, and he's just, he says, don't do it, don't buy into it, that's not the way this works, that's not the way the kingdom of God is coming, don't, don't be one who falls to that kind of spiritual false advertisement, and it's just a good warning. For somebody here this evening, you're like, I already, yeah, I've done that a couple times. I mean, I've already been that person that thought, hey, I needed, you know, something. God was doing something, and it was in another city or another location. I thought, well, I'm going to have to go there. I mean, if I want to be a part of the kingdom of God, I'm going to have to hop on a plane and fly there. And then you found, hopefully, that's not God. It's not the way this thing is moving. That's not the way God is building His kingdom. It's not, it's not going to happen that way. There is no kind of manifestation will happen, and yet that's happened so many times in human and spiritual history, and I'm just telling you, Jesus is so clear about it. I mean, I don't know how it could be less clearer than this. He says, don't do it. If somebody says, hey, the kingdom of God's happening over here, or it's happening over there, Jesus said, don't believe it. Don't believe it. That's not the way this thing works. It's not going to come that way. You're not going to see God, God's kingdom build in that way. He says, do not go after them or follow them in verse 23. That said, well, right from that, we understand it's not going to come with observation, but it is going to happen in a moment. When Jesus really does return, it's not going to be this kind of military victory or kind of slow movement across the lands. He says it this way in verse 24, For as the lightning that flashes from one part under the heaven shines to another part of the heaven, so also is the coming, so will the coming of the Son of Man be in His day. He says you know, there's a sense of when we think about Jesus returning and the kingdom of God, He says it's going to happen. It's going to happen, as Paul would talk about it in Corinthians, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. I mean, it's not going to be something that's just slow. It's when, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be just like that. It, it, it'll ha- you know, as, as lightning flashes. Do that sometime. When you're out in a storm, just watch a lightning bolt for a moment and just think about it. Before, in the moment that the lightning you know, started from one part of the sky and got to the other or you know, got from the sky to the ground and, and try to track it for a moment. And most of you know, it's, like, it's almost instantaneous. I mean, it's like, you know, we, 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 move, there is no like, you know, it's, 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 just, it's just done. And it's just, that's our expectation that Jesus, when he comes back, it's gonna happen just like that. Well, with that, he does speak very clearly to those there. Verse 25, but he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus speaks to them as they're thinking about the coming of the kingdom of God. He just simply speaks to them very clearly. Hey, before that's going to happen, I'm going to have to be rejected and I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to walk through that. And it was both a powerful reality to that moment, but included in scripture in part for us here to understand there is no kingdom without the cross. 
There is no, hey, the kingdom of God is coming without Jesus coming to suffer. And so he says, you're wanting the kingdom, but first I'm going to have to suffer and I'm going to be rejected. That the reason we have hope of a kingdom is because our king came and sacrificed himself for us. That's why we have an expectation, and it's a right expectation of Jesus' return. So he's laying this out for us, this idea of, of not misunderstanding the kingdom of God as if it's again going to be a military or slow thing. It's going to, you know, he's doing it invisibly, but when Jesus comes back, it's going to be in an instant. And now he just speaks about that a little bit more. It lets us know that it's going to interrupt life and catch people off guard. Follow along with it as he says it this way. Verse 26, and as it was in the days of Noah, so also it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married. They married wives and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and would destroy them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So he likens it to the accounts that we have of both Noah and Lot in, in the Old Testament and, and these stories of the flood that came in Noah's day or Sodom and Gomorrah when the, when the fire fell. And he just almost helped, causes us to imagine it for a moment. It's not like the whole world felt it coming. It wasn't on the calendar. In fact, for most people, it was just a normal day. And life was going on as life goes on. That's kind of the illustration. He says that, you know, like days of, of both in Noah and Lot, he says people were, were marrying. They had weddings planned. They had meals planned. They ate and they were drinking. They had businesses moving where he talks about it in Lot's day. He says, you know, they, they're buying, they're selling, they're planting, they're building. They, there is a sense of just life feeling as if it's just going to keep on going. Plans that are working in the midst of that, and, and there's something about that reality. Because in one sense, we think about the day that Jesus comes back, the, the day that he does rend the heavens, the day that when lightning flashes from one side of the heavens to the other and Jesus returns, there is a sense that it's just going to catch people off guard with that sense of almost an expectation that life was just going to keep on going. And there's somehow something really powerful about this reality, and very helpful. Because for most of us, that's how it feels. Oh, don't get me wrong. I know this. If I were to ask many of you, like, you ready for Jesus to come back? You think he is coming back? And some of you would say, oh, absolutely, yes. But for most of us, we got plans. You have plans later this week. You have plans this summer. You have plans next year. You know, you're already kind of... And there is a sense that, you know, it just kind of feels like life's going to keep on going. And sometimes you almost begin to feel... Does that mean Jesus isn't coming back if this is how life feels? If it feels like everything's normal or it feels like life is just going on? Oh, it doesn't mean that it was easy. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, Noah, they were certainly were not perfect in generations. There's, there is wickedness growing. There is evil just prominent in both of those spaces. But still, there was a sense that life just felt like it was going to keep moving forward. But it didn't. In one moment, it changed. In one moment, you know, the, the, the water began to fall. In one moment, fire fell from heaven in the days of Lot, and it changed. And Jesus says, that's how it's going to be. 
when I come back, it's going to be that way. It's going to interrupt life. It's going to be that that, that absolutely shatters it. That, that whether it be you know, eating and marriages, buying and selling and planting, there is a sense that, that all of those things are going to feel like they're just going on, but it's not. It's going to interrupt. It's going to just stop right in the middle of that. It could, it could happen right in the middle of a sermon. It could happen right in the middle of what we're saying right now. That it could, in that sense, that kind of reality. And so with that, he just kind of calls us, and he just tells us in that reality, because we're using the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says it this way in verse 31, in that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. He who seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So he's giving us this illustration. He's used the idea of Sodom and Gomorrah, and there's a powerful picture of how God was, God was rescuing even Lot, which is a beautiful picture of God's mercy and grace. Yeah, we had time to, to fully just unpack that. But the story is of Lot's wife. The angel comes and rescues Lot at the last moment, tells him to flee, and gives him very specific commands. Don't look back. Don't look back leave here and don't look back, and yet she does look back. And it's not just the physical look. It's as if, in one sense, she is so close to being ready, but her heart is still connected to the world, and almost in that sense, longing for it, and she becomes a pillar of salt and misses it. And so Jesus just is telling us, hey, don't be that way. I mean, don't be that way. There was probably very specific instructions that's going to affect the Jews on the day that Jesus comes back in these verses, but there's also very real realities in us. That if we're recognizing, hey, Jesus could come back at any moment, then he's kind of calling us to be people that remember Lot's wife. That the idea of learn is the idea of remember. Learn from her. Like, that's not going to be me. I'm ready to leave right now. I mean, if Jesus is going to come back in a moment, then I, I want to live in a disconnected way so that I'm always ready to, to, to be able to move forward with the Lord. It's with that. He just gives us a, a very clear statement about it. Since I tell you, in that night, verse 34, there will be two men in one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Now, quick FYI, I think some of your translate might, I read it because the New King James says men, but it puts the word men in italics, and so that lets you know that the italics are added, and, and so it's not any kind of like reference. I mean, again, we live in such a heathen society. It's like somebody's like, man, two men in one bed. That doesn't sound good. Um, it, it's not that kind of thing. It's, it, it's not in, in, in the midst of the whole thing. It's the idea there's just two in a bed. And, and so it's probably husband, wife, or always something else. It isn't the idea of, of, of you know, gender specific. It is the idea of, hey, there are two people, and there they are. I mean, in, in one bed, and so I'll just read it that way. This is to tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken. And the other left. Two, in verse 35, will be grinding together. One will be taken. And the other left. Two will be in the field. One will be taken. And the other left. So Jesus lays just this, this reality, this fearful reality, and yet this, this big divide that when Jesus comes back, it's going to separate just, just right down the line. And, and, and just this reality is probably going to happen just like this. Lots of interesting thoughts. I mean, there's definitely a, a sense of almost um, the way that it's going to hit different parts of the globe. I mean, whatever day it happens, for some people it's going to be night, and they're going to be sleeping, and other people it's going to be day. But he says it's just going to divide. In that moment, 
You know, there'll, there'll be two right there, and that that separation will happen in this instant. It, it'll happen, and some will be taken, and other left. Now, there's a little bit of discussion among Bible students that, okay, is the taken kind of the rapture, or believers, is the left, those in judgment, some would see it the other way. And I'm just going to tell you, you know, it, it's really not worth the argument, because the point is, it's going to divide. I mean, you know, there, there are going to be this in that moment that, that when Jesus comes back, those who are His, who are a part of the kingdom of God, who are looking for that in that moment, it's just going to radically change everything. And, and that kind of almost reality is one of those like, wow, I mean, I know this. I don't know how that kind of strikes you. I mean, this idea of this kind of, you know, some will be taken, others will be left or left behind. And, and, and those realities sometimes are, are very picturesque. I think of old Christian movies I've seen. I mean, some, some of you guys are in the same kind of place, but like, oh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like, you know, there is this, you know, but it's a, it's a real reality that there's one sense that we think about, that's exactly what's going to happen. The kingdom of God, it's not it's not taking a city. It's not just a whole family. It's those who are His. And those who are His. And in that moment when Jesus comes back, all of those who are His will be with Him. And it's going to divide everything in life. It's going to divide, you know, so that you could almost just watch it transpire. And you could, you could watch it happen. And there's like this preview that this isn't just some emotive or kind of manipulative reality. I'm just telling Jesus, that's exactly what's going to happen. There's a day coming, and Jesus is going to come back, and when it happens, I mean, just you're going to watch the kingdom of God, and you're going to watch, you know, these two that are there, and they're both working side by side, and yet one's going to go with him, and the other is not. And so the simple reality is, again, a call to that challenge. Now, they asked Jesus a question, and they answered, and said in verse 37, they said, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. And without spending a bunch of time on it, that's actually a really troubling. It's like it's got Bible students in kind of a uh, kind of conniption trying to figure out what this is. It could just be talking about judgment. And it could be say, hey, in that moment, you know, there's going to be death. And, you know, that there is often this kind of picturesque thing of where there is death that the eagles gather. Others think it's much more of a almost just a phrase. Like, you know, when, it, when the time is ripe, it's going to happen. I mean, you know, wh- where is this going to happen? It's just going to say, you know, when they, when, when, you know, wherever the eagles are, that's where bodies are. And that's, it'll just be kind of a, a place that is, it's just going to happen in that moment. And I think in some senses, either way that you go with that, certainly that's the reality, that there's a sense that what he's speaking to us is calling us to see it that way, that there is this sense that this is how the kingdom of God is coming. So let's think about this for a moment. So we've walked through three things tonight. We saw three different things. But here's what I want you to understand with me. You know, sometimes I find myself, you know, as we kind of are thinking about messages and thinking about what I'm sharing, and I'll often say, you know, I wonder where you are. Maybe one of these things applies to your life. And I just want to tell you, I can honestly say all three of these issues are an issue that they are issues in your life today. There's not somebody here that's like, well, that's not really an issue for me. No, I, I find myself just fascinated in thinking, no, there's a reality that right now, your life every day is touched by these things. And there's a sense of just recognizing that we'd be on the right side of it. That whether it be dealing with offenses, or being thankful, or being ready. Living ready for Jesus, because that's how we're called to live. Because if the kingdom of God is happening invisibly, and Jesus is going to come back, and the moment He comes back, 
there's no more retreat. There's no more debate. There's no more, hey, let me think about that for a minute. You know, I really was thinking about getting right with Jesus. You know, Can I have five more minutes? It's like, no, that's, it, in that moment, it's done. You know, when he comes back, it's over. And so the only way to, to kind of live is to live ready, where we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, God, these are the things that, that should define my life. And I can honestly say that all of these are things that are meant to touch your life every single day. Again, I have talked about the Lord's Prayer a little bit tonight, and I'll just come back to it and think, you know, when I work my way through the Lord's Prayer, it's interesting that all of these are a part of it. You know, that I'm saying, God, I just don't, I want to deal with offenses. I want to deal with forgiveness because I, it's the only way I can walk in this. As I worship Him and I, and I recognize who He is, I, I spend time every day just being thankful, just focusing on recognizing who He is. And every day, I, I, I pray a part of that. Lord, your kingdom. I want your kingdom to come. God, you know, I'm praying for it. I'm, I want to live my life because I want to be a part of what you're doing today, but I'm also recognizing, boy, that could happen today. And, and so that defines both my existence and life. And I'm telling you tonight, hey, Jesus is seeking to work this into you in a way that this would define your existence today. So as we pull this to a close, I, I know this, that it's not that one of these things are meant to apply to you. They all are. But I invite you to him right now. I invite you just to walk with me, join me, and just say, okay, God, let's be right where you are in these things right now. So would you join me? Let's go over in prayer and ask him for that right now. Jesus, thank you for your truth that just speaks into lives. And, and Lord, I just want to recognize that I've, as I've tried to say it here, I know this, that these things that we've talked about tonight, they are not disconnected from our lives. These are not just things that help other people. God, there's just not one of us here this evening that doesn't need to walk in this. So very quickly, I just want to pray through it. God, we live in a world of offenses. Help us not to be the cause. Help us to love people and try to avoid it. But Lord, on the other side of it, may we be the ones in our own hearts that we readily seek to root those out, that we become a forgiving people that we would forgive others the way that you forgive us. Lord, when we've built that up in our lives as some impossible or huge thing, may we hear you, Jesus, just tell us. Actually, it's not. It's just a little bit of faith and simple obedience. So God, here we are. God, help us to forgive. Would you search us right now if there's somebody that we're holding on to bitterness, some mulberry tree that has deep roots in our lives? Right now, I just want to come and say, God, we want to forgive them. We want to be those who just say, Lord, you've told us to do this. This isn't an option. And it's something you can do. A little faith can do this. God, would you help us to be those in in this generation that live forgiveness? So right now, Lord, would you forgive? Would you forgive these? God, as we're asking for that, then we also want to come and just recognize that you're good. And we want to be those like that Samaritan that return to you and recognize your good to us, that we live in a constant supply of your goodness, that we would not have air to breathe, we wouldn't have food to eat, we wouldn't have anything if you weren't the supply of it. We are constantly the receivers of your good grace. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness towards us.
Thank you, Lord, for your kindness towards us. Thank you that you are a God who sees and supplies. Thank you. God, would you help us to be a thankful people, to give thanks in all things. And right now, I do just thank you. God, as I recognize this, and I'm, I'm asking for these realities in us, then I, I do think about the reality. You are coming. It's not a question of if you'll come. It's just a question of when. I thank you for the kingdom of God that is being built today, that today you're drawing people to Christ and, and the reality of drawing people to you. What help us to know that and yet live in that reality so that when that stops, when that last person is saved, when the kingdom of God kind of reaches that place where you know what you're drawing to and Jesus, you come back in that just instantaneous moment of time as lightning flashes from one side of the heavens to the other. God, I just want to be ready for it. And when I cry out for it, say, Lord, I'm living for that moment. I'm living for your kingdom. I, I, I want to live ready for that and, and just pray with both expectation and desire. And God, it is with that. If there's anybody in this place right now or anybody online that they're not ready, that they don't know you, or they're kind of like Lot's wife, or they're kind of half in and half out, Lord, would you make them recognize that is a dangerous location, and there will be people like Lot's wife who miss out. God, would you cause that not to be anybody here? Would you cause us to be all in, recognizing your kingdom is coming, living in light of that? God, would you cause us even now with expectation to live ready for your kingdom. I pray that for me and for all of us here tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together for this closing song. We'll worship the Lord.